0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Humans have been so dominant on Earth, in large part because of their capacity to innovate. But how does that work exactly? Why can they innovate so much? Well, that issue has been studied by Professor Min Jung from the Centre of Synaptic Brain Dysfunctions at the Institute for Basic Science in South Korea. So, Professor, thanks for joining us. Welcome to you. Just tell us, first of all, you, you rely a lot on... The concept of imagination. What is imagination? Imagination
1: is the process of consciously thinking about events that might happen. For example, we can imagine we walk on the moon. So you can imagine any event from you know what you know already. You can combine this in many different ways so, can, so that you can put together things that might happen, which can be not possible, in fact.
0: Yeah, and is that a uniquely human capacity? Can animals imagine?
1: Yeah, uh, there is evidence for that, uh, even in rats. Studies, uh, physiological studies, they stick a scientific microelectrode in the brain and they record activity. And there are uh, so-called play cells in the hippocampus where these cells fire at certain location. So while animals navigate these play cells fire in sequence, but when they later sleep, these uh, play cell sequences are replayed. But these trajectories sometimes cover the never experienced trajectories. So this is uh, quite tangible evidence suggesting that these animals might imagine.
0: These measurements are done during sleep, and uh, how can you know that they're imagining a, a, a trajectory, a new trajectory?
1: Because these trajectories have never been uh, traveled by this rat before.
0: No, but what I'm wondering is, how do you know what they're thinking? Uh, I mean, how can you work out that that's what they're imagining?
1: There is a recent study uh, where they the scientists recorded this uh, play cell activity, and while the animals are you know uh, sitting quiet, it is a replay, and based on this replay, they uh, move the virtual environment. So these uh, animals navigate by their neural activity.
0: I see. Would I be right in understanding dreaming, uh, and yeah, this sort of thing happening in sleep to be to be a sort of a, a very good moment for imagination? Is that right during
1: deep sleeps? Uh, these neural activities observed—they fire in rapid sequence, and they may represent what you experienced before, but uh, as well as what you never experienced before.
0: Yeah. And with humans, uh, I mean, imagining happens not just in sleep, right? It happens in in the daytime too, maybe in a more sort of quiet state, but not a sleeping state.
1: That, that's right. So that's also observed in uh, animals, in rats, while they are sitting quiet. So they navigate, they stop momentarily. During this time, these so-called replays are uh, observed.
0: Okay. So then uh, you, you're matching this concept of imagination with cognitive ability. Talk us through how you define cognitive ability.
1: It's a very broad terminology. Actually, cognitive, it is not really well defined. Uh, Cognitive scientists use as a concept against very simple stuff like seeing, moving, eating, things like that. So cognitive is somewhat not very well defined, but something like uh, imagination, uh, reasoning, uh, planning, things like that. So scientists generally categorize this as a
0: cognitive ability. Oh, I see. So imagination folds within cognitive ability, really. Yes, it's one yeah, we say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, and then humans can have abstract thought, can't they? So right, right. numbers, language, maybe. Um, right. T- t- and, and is that uniquely human?
1: Definitely not. <laughs> Abstraction, uh, you know, animals can do that. But what I propose in the book is that the level of abstraction, high-level abstraction, uh, the level is much higher in humans than you know,
0: other animals. So give us examples of animal, animals uh, uh, having abstract thought. If you teach animals uh, some rules,
1: they can understand the rule and apply this rule to new situations. And think about it, the nature is not random. There are regularities and animals, uh, capture this regularity as a, some kind of rule and use this rule, this representation, abstract notion to optimize their behavior. And, and there's, a, a again, neural, neurophysiological evidence. If you recall neural activity, many neurons are responsive to some rules or abstract concepts like numbers, for example, number numerosity. That's an abstract notion, and there are neurons responsive to numerosity in the animal brain.
0: And there's lots of evidence that animals can count quite well, right?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Of course, definitely.
0: Do we know whether they can do things like add and subtract?
1: Yes, there is evidence for that.
0: There's plenty of uh, you know
1: classic studies where you know you have to add uh, these numbers, like give two different sets of. Uh, like uh, food. So by adding these two, you have to choose. You need adding ability to be able to choose uh, the larger quantity. And there are plenty of uh, know, classic studies suggesting that animals can add numbers.
0: Now, one of the points you make in your book is that alongside uh, this you know, cognitive ability and the differences between animals and humans and, and the importance of imagination, alongside all of that, you're stressing the role of memory yeah, and, and saying how important that is. Can you just explain that to us?
1: Yeah, our imagination uh, is based on memory. Uh, we store our experiences and then uh, uh, use this experience, put together these pieces of uh, experience together. So memory and imagination might be two sides of a coin, okay? So without no knowledge, we can't really imagine. We need knowledge, we need information. So by experiences, uh, we store information, and using this information, i.e., memory, we imagine.
0: Does that mean, I mean, I know that we've come across this before in this series, this this um, Henry Molaison case in yeah. 1953, yeah. a man who lost yeah. his memory due to some botched, well, some of early brain surgery. That's right. What, what, well, okay, just put it like this. What does he teach us about what you're saying?
1: This uh, patient dramatically lost his ability to store new information. Okay. So he can't really remember new variances. And also what we now know is that if we have uh, same damage, people with the uh, same damage can't really have vivid image- imagination. So the same brain structure, i.e. hippocampus uh, is involved in not only remembering new things, but also in imagination.
0: Yes, well, that raises all sorts of difficult questions because um, you're saying the hippocampus is the centre of both memory and imagination, which suggests right. <clears throat> which suggests that the two of them can get mixed up, which right. is quite problematic if you're a lawyer or a policeman or try to <laughs> try to work out what's going on in a <laughs> court case. And I, I have to say, also as a journalist, I've really come across this this business of people thinking they've remembered yeah. something right when they haven't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. How do memory and imagination get mixed up? So, memories
1: do change over time. So, uh, Dan Schechter at Harvard Psychology, he proposed so-called constructive memory hypothesis, meaning that uh, we uh, put together pieces of information according to your current knowledge and how you feel now. So, memories do change over time. So, if you... Uh, In certain circumstances, for example, if you are uh, given some cues from your, like, trusted uh, person, like uh, your doctor, uh, some authority, you can form uh, forced memories. And that's the, uh, you know, one chapter I wrote about uh, to emphasize that memory and imagination might be not that different in terms of a brain, uh, you know, the hippocampus.
0: No, I find it absolutely fascinating part of your book. And uh, I was slightly unclear still. So it, one might imagine that you see something, I don't know, something important like a car crash. Yeah. And you remember it, it sticks in the memory, it's important. And yet you're suggesting when you come to recall it 10 years later, mm-hmm. you know, your memory of it might have changed. Right. Can you talk me through the mechanism by which that happens? Uh, because our brain, uh, our mind
1: tends to fill in missing information, okay? It's been known uh, psychologically that when we experience something, sometimes uh, not all information is registered. Uh, there is some missing link, but our brains fill in uh, this missing information with our best guesses. That's the way uh, our mind operates. Uh, in that process, you uh, no, filling in gaps. And then uh, because we use our best guesses, not based on actually, you know, actual experience, uh, some misinformation can be slipped in this process. So forced memory, you know, and this is not forced memory, but uh, wrong information. So not exactly correct memory can be uh, generated uh, after you experience some event.
0: Right. I, I mean, okay. So people filling in the detail. So let's say the policeman asks a witness, what color was the jacket? Of the suspect and you know maybe maybe the eyewitness didn't really see it and then they fill it in right. they, they they imagine yeah yeah, right. yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah
0: but that's different from just remembering things wrong isn't it i mean i i have actually mentioned this before but it is fascinating to me that it, i i did a story about a hijack mm-hmm. in 1981 mm-hmm. and recently interviewed people who were on the plane mm-hmm. and a man was shot within three feet of two different individuals, mm-hmm. and they remembered the incident completely differently. Yeah. One of them told me the body was dragged to the front door of the plane, and the other said it was dragged to the back door of the plane. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely massive difference. <laughs> and I, I mean, yeah. I know now because yeah. I, yeah, that it was actually the front. Yeah, so one of them was yeah. just wrong. How did that? How does that happen?
1: Yeah, uh, I think we just talked about it. Uh... Well, they're not filling in, are they? Because they both... Yeah, that's not filling in, you know. Uh, Sometimes you, when you recall, like, wrong information can uh, get in. So it is pretty uh, often the case that uh, there are many many witnesses. Uh, Their testimony is quite, you know, differ, even though they saw the same thing. Yeah? Yeah, exactly. So so what exactly is the mechanism for remembering a different way? I think so many things uh, are involved. For example... Different people pay attention to different things. So, their correct perception at the time of the occurrence of an event might differ. And so, different
0: people feel in different information, maybe. Is, is it also to do with sort of creating a story? Is it, is, do, do stories come into this? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. If you think
1: over and over, initially, uh, you don't have a full story, but uh, it can be details can be added on. So, stories can be formed in different ways. Every time you recall, slowly new information added, added. You know, That's the possibility.
0: Is there any evidence that some people have more accurate memories than others?
1: Uh, I don't know if this uh, will be an answer, but there are a very small number of people who can really remember details of what they experienced. Okay. Super memory people, okay? Other than that, in the normal range, probably there are some variants, but overall, uh, you know, the dramatic differences uh, are not that much, I guess. Most people forget, you know,
0: things happened long before, right? I don't know if you're familiar with Christopher Hitchens, the, uh, the, the British writer who lived in America for many years. Uh, I interviewed him once and made the point that his books had you know, so many different references in them to, to other literature. Yeah, every page would have five or six quotes or different references, and he said, "Well, the reason that is is I I I am just happen to remember everything I ever read. I, I remember everything, yeah. and it, see. it seemed the most extraordinary thing. But so, have you have there been studies of people who have that capacity? Yeah,
1: also there are some people having so called photographing memory." What I mentioned before is, uh, this is different from a photographing memory. These people have a really, you know, extra extraordinary memory for the like entire autobiography, but there are people having a photographing memory. If you see, they can read across, you know, backward. So there are some variations, but most people, I think, uh, you know, normal people, we have a similar, you know, forgetting and a similar capacity.
0: So tell us a bit more about the hippocampus. Where is it? Is it made of the same material as the rest of the brain? Why is it uh, so important? You know, what can you tell us about the hippocampus, which you're saying is at the center of all that you're discussing, really? It is made
1: of the same neurons and glial cells uh, and the blood vessels like any other brain parts, okay, made of neurons. Its connection is evolutionarily old, okay, and then it evolved first, and it looks like uh, new cortical areas, new brain regions are added to the hippocampus. And it is connected to all other brain regions and looks like it is you know playing the, the same role it's been playing long before, where it is connected with most brain regions, especially cortex, which plays a very important role in high cognitive capacity, sense information, guess information, So it gets information from all the brain region, and when we are in, like, during sleeping on idle state, it generates new patterns and broadcasts this to all other uh, brain regions and it communicates. So it looks like there is a special, you know, connectivity-wise, there is something special about the campus. It coordinates uh, overall activity of the brain during, uh, like, idling state.
0: Just talk us through the distinction between that and the cortex. So actually, uh, you know, the cortex
1: I mentioned is, uh, to be precise a neocortex. Okay. So hippocampus is also cortex, but it is uh, evolutionarily old. So it is called arch cortex. And then the neocortex, uh, which, uh, consists of like a visual cortex, auditory cortex, moral cortex, doing many different special things. Okay. Whereas hippocampus gets all this information and stores them as memories and during either state generates new patterns, Looks like imagination. The hippocampus seems to be important for memory and imagination, whereas neocortex, they mostly do special things.
0: In your book, you go on to look at various animals uh, and to draw conclusions about their mental capacity and what it can tell us about you know, memory, imagination, cognitive ability, and it's, it's quite interesting because these different animals have different capacities, right? So I'm going to ask you to talk us through some of these animals and what they can teach us. So we'll start with rats, which I guess are the most frequently observed.
1: Many neuroscientists uh, use rats and mice uh, to study brain functions. So we know quite a bit about that. And the, the hippocampus, the rat hippocampus versus human hippocampus, very similar. So it looks like hippocampus uh, is uh, the basic uh, anatomy and uh, physiology and function seems to be conserved across rats and humans, all mammals. Whereas neocortex uh, is you know very different from rat versus humans. In human, neocortex is much much more developed, the size wise, you know, and many different specializations.
0: Right. Well, other animals you look at are birds, whales. Bats, uh, the Klax Nutcracker, which we can talk about. Uh, yeah. But but when you when you say the cortex in the rat is less developed, is there is there any of the ones I've just mentioned where the cortex is more highly developed?
1: No. <laughs> so The right. right. so primate, yeah, cortex, especially human cortex, much 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 more developed than other animals.
0: So, do you think it's the combination of the hippocampus with this cortex that that creates the human capacity?
1: That's what I what propose in the book. You know, hippocampus is very similar uh, between rats and humans. And so their memory and imagination function is similar. But because the human neocortex is expanded greatly, their abstract thinking capability is much, much higher than rats. That's why we can use abstract concept and imagine using this concept. And I, I think that's... a uh, one major reason why we are innovative, we can come up with great ideas.
0: And when you come to uh, species which are close to the human, you know, mm-hmm. apes or, or, or some monkeys, yeah. Uh, yeah. how do they fit into this?
1: Yeah, probably something in between, but there hasn't been you know uh, studied much, so... What we know most about, you know, imagination, neural neural activity related to imagination, has come from rats and mice. So right now, uh, there is virtually no data about monkey hippocampus imagination related activity. So we have to wait until the scientists come up with some data.
0: Yes, it's one of the striking things of your book that there are these surprisingly large gaps <laughs> in what and yeah. what's been researched. You know. Yeah, that's right. And I I, I
1: know that there are, uh, you know, some uh, uh, monkey uh, neuroscientists who uh, plan to do research on this topic, okay? Monkey hippocampus
0: imagination. Well, tell tell us about the whale, uh, which has a bigger brain than a human, right? But but, but less capable.
1: Uh, If you compare whale brain, human brain, of course whale brain, much larger, okay? But if you count the number of neurons in the neocortex, the number of neurons in the human neocortex is more than the number of neurons uh, in the whale brain or elephant's brain. So it looks like neocortex, uh, uh, so there is something special about neocortex for high cognitive capacity, like uh, in a highly abstract thinking, focused reasoning, things like that.
0: One of the things you you keep coming back to is spatial awareness and the capacity of animals to basically get from A to B, and and you know with various obstacles put in the that's way. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Why don't you just tell us first of all why you think spatial awareness? I mean, is it just because it's easy to measure that you that it's important, or or is it more than that? Yeah, I
1: think that's correct because uh, as I told you, play cells are uh, uh, found in the Red hippocampus. It's a very clear neural correlate, and then uh, it is easy to study this uh, spatial navigation and how hippocampal activity changes. Uh, that has been studied the, the most. And on top of that, I think uh, the reason you know, we, including humans, animals, uh, are capable capable of imagination, is because of the spatial navigation. Okay, so as I propose in the book, uh, the terrestrial animals, they have to remember trajectory, okay? Because if you go some direction, there might be obstacles. So you have to remember many different trajectories, okay? So learning all these trajectory by actual experiences, it takes too much time. So that's why I think during idling state, our hippocampus generates new patterns and evaluate this pattern. So it's like offline learning, okay? Without Engaging in actual behavior, you learn by generating patterns, simulation, and imagination. That's what I propose.
0: Yeah, and and when you get to animals like bats, you know, t- yeah. t- tiny brain, but this fantastic ability to navigate the space, right? Right, right, Mu- right. Much superior to ours. Bat is a, a, it's a
1: rodent. It's like a rat, a flying rat. Right. So if you compare a bat brain, red brain, kind of similar. So their neocortex is not that uh, developed compared to human, but the hippocampus is well developed, right? Rat. And their flying, That's that sort of a navigation is superb, as are rats.
0: Oh, really? I mean, see, I, 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 you would say that the rat's navigation capacity is as good as a bat's. Yeah. Uh huh. Their navigation capacity is superb. Okay. And and then uh, I, d- I did mention the Klax Nutcracker, which is interesting because it stores food in lots of different right. places and re- remembers yeah, yeah. where it is, which is, you know, yeah, ble- yeah, quite clever. Yeah, lovely. yeah, yeah. Have you ever established that the Klax Nutcracker is like a human and that it misremembers where it's put its food sometimes?
1: Uh, yeah, they sometimes uh, uh, misremember locations. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you, the scientists counted how many did they recover? And the percentage wise is pretty high, uh, sometimes like near 90%. So not all, it's not perfect, but, uh, they do remember many, many locations. And I think compared to human, their spatial capacity and spatial memory capacity is higher because uh, there was, there is a ecological requirement for them to do that. Okay. They have to store and they have to retrieve. Without the capacity, uh, they wouldn't be able to survive.
0: But what I'm trying to get at with some of these things is is how can it be that some animals with far smaller brains than humans have greater capacities than humans in certain very specialist areas? I mean, does that help us understand what's going on?
1: Yeah, I think uh, studying uh, certain animals' brains, small brain, doing good jobs for certain things better than humans, I think that will help us to understand how this, uh, you know, neural network can perform computation. And even though we say small brain, uh, if you count the number of neurons, uh, there are, you know, many. So even though human brains is large, it's mostly neocortex and then, uh, they are directed toward more like, uh, highly cognitive steps, like abstraction. So in case of animals, even though their brains are smaller, if you look at their neural network, the complexity is enormous, even small brain. So uh, for certain things, like remembering specific locations precisely or certain precise motor movement control, yeah, you can imagine that, you know, this uh, so-called quote-unquote small network can do that.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, well, it... it... Much of your book is spent discussing the technicalities of measuring brain activity. You know, it's obviously a highly technical subject and specialist area. When you look to the future of the field, yeah, you're talking uh-huh. about these locations in the brain—the hippocampus, the cortex, neocortex—yeah, which are so important. Do you see the future of this research being in this very technical work measuring? what sort of movements of electrons and all the rest of it there are in between these areas and how they communicate and how you can show that by measurement. Is, is that where the future work lies?
1: Yeah, I think uh, measuring neural activity uh, uh, is uh, something uh, fundamental to understanding how the brain, the neural network operates and processes information.
0: In what other ways do you think this field can be advanced other than measuring neural activity?
1: Yeah, measuring neural activity is one thing. Another is uh, manipulating neural activity and see the behavior. Okay, so not really measuring, but activating or inhibiting certain groups of neurons and see how animal behavior changes. And also uh, in humans, we of course, we do have brain imaging. Okay. And also computational modeling. Okay, so if we come up with a neural network which can, you know, perform uh, exactly what uh, is required for an animal to do, yeah. So this all combination measuring neural
0: activity, manipulating. Yeah, manipulating. that's uh, interesting. When you talk about manipulating neural activity, how do you do that? Scientists used to apply
1: electrical stimulus. But now uh scientists use light stimulation. They uh express specific proteins in specific subsets of neurons and apply light. So these proteins are engineered to be responsive to light. And they can by applying light, they can act by specific subsets of neurons in the brain. This is called optogenetics.
0: It's, it's interesting when you talk about modeling and, uh, you know, it, it suddenly opens up the possibility of a huge range of applications, doesn't it, if it oh, yeah, was, yeah, if yeah. it is possible to model brain activity. Uh, how far, I mean, that would make chat GBT look, look like, you know, very crude, wouldn't it? So how, how, how far advanced is that? There has been, you
1: know, so-called computational neuroscience. It's a big field. Uh, much a lot of progress is going on but now what we achieve with so-called like uh you know uh, deep learning AI that's not truly biological so truly biological and at the same time uh you have like uh yeah the current AI like deep learning they put many 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 layers uh, much more than in humans and not they don't really use a uh, real biological uh, algorithm and they can achieve a uh, stunning success. So the current computational neuroscience, if uh, they advance and they can come up with ways to together this uh, realistic neural network and then come up with uh, ways to have them perform better than like current uh, deep
0: learning algorithm, I think that will happen in the future can i just ask you one one final thought about how this is all funded i mean this is such deep research and it and and at this stage it's not obvious that it has applications that are profitable you know that that, that companies can use so how does this yeah. all how does this get funded who 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 is paying for this work to go on the government fund uh, is one uh Source
1: like uh, in the United States, NIH, uh, National Science Foundation, and also some private uh, foundation like uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute.
0: It's like that. And when they fund it, what are they hoping to achieve? What's the what's the you know is there a goal that funders have in mind?
1: Yeah, that's uh, uh, their goal is uh, you know advancement of knowledge. And that will eventually lead to, for example, in the case of NIH, we have to understand the brain to come up with a way to cure mental diseases. Okay. So without understanding the brain, uh, we can't really, uh, you know, find good cure for many psychiatric illnesses. Okay. So basic research is needed. That's why National Institute of Health, United States support this kind of research. And also National Science Foundation. Also, some private founders, and even some military fund—they do support this basic research.
0: Yes, I thought the military <laughs> might, <Yeah. laughs> might be involved somewhere. But yeah. so, so that's a very interesting thing you've just said. I mean, it, it, is there anything in 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 your work that's made you think, or what you've read and research you've seen, that we're closer to, let's say, a treatment for depression? Let's say a very common ailment, you know, and and which affects millions of people. Is the kind of work you're discussing helping yeah. us understand that, or is it still too far away to say that? Uh, there is
1: so-called rumination in depression. These depressed patients tend to think about, you know, uh, things, uh, that the aversive event over and over, okay? This is sort of imagination. You imagine things uh, that are bad again and again. So there might be, uh, you know, uh, some mechanism go Ori in, you know, your imagination process towards something negative. And then, uh, well, yeah, that's maybe one link I can think of. But uh, overall, what I proposed, uh, what I wrote in the book is not directly related to uh, mental diseases.
0: No, I know. But it's just, it's just, I was just trying to think where this research that you're so involved in yeah, may lead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's yeah, got yeah. so many possibilities, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Professor, thank you so much for discussing uh, this uh, very interesting and difficult area very early in a way, isn't it, but uh, which holds so much potential.
1: Yes, uh, actually, the the motivation for me to write this book is uh, I think time is right to think about these subjects. Uh, Neuroscience so far focused on like uh, sensory processing, motor control, memory, but not much about like a spontaneous cognition, imagination. Creativity, innovation, this kind of stuff. But I think it is now, uh, you know, possible to study this subject. So I'd like to encourage young scientists to get into this field.
0: Well, I'm sure you've helped them do that. Thank you very much, Professor Min-chong. Thank you for the
1: kind invitation.